Good morning. I'd like to begin by saying just how grateful I am to be standing up here this morning. Um, I know that I'm only up here because of the great professors we have here, the great students that go here, my friends, my family, and the role that they've had in my life in shaping who I am is the only reason why that I'm here today. And so I'm especially grateful, though, to both Dr. Glower and Dr. Gregory um, for the work that they do with preaching students here. Um, they help students find their voice and find you know, what God would have them do. And so, Dr. Glower, thank you so much for what you do. And although I am a little hurt that Dr. Gregory didn't fly back in from Oxford to be here, you know, you think you know a guy, right? So it's been quite the journey for me to arrive at this point today. I never in a million years thought I would be up standing behind a pulpit at a chapel service at a seminary. You know, 10 years ago, I didn't even know what a seminary was. I didn't know it existed. So not to encourage you know, any jokes about me being young, but 10 years ago, I was finishing out my freshman year of high school, okay? And at this time, I was pretty clueless. My parents received an extra portion of grace to deal with me. I was doing stupid stuff all the time with my friends. We would do idiotic things that made you really wonder, like, how dumb could you possibly be? One of the things that we would do is we'd go outside on the soccer field at lunch. We'd spin around in a circle for a minute, get super dizzy, and then have races. And you know what happens when you do that? You dive across the finish line in first, right? I won. But then someone jumps on you, and they break your collarbone, put their knee right through it. So it's just like one example that I've come a long way from where I was 10 years ago. In the midst of me being dumb, God was working in my life to bring me here to this place today. Because 10 years ago, I was being tricked. That's right, I was being tricked into go to youth summer camp. Earlier that year, I'd played on my high school soccer team, and I made two very important and influential relationships. One of those was my friend named Mike. Now, Mike was the goofiest guy that I'd ever met, but you just wanted to be around him. He just had this infectious love that I didn't understand where it came from at the time, but he was a goober. He was just a joy to be with, and that was an influential relationship that I made that I still have today. And the other one was my soccer coach, and he was a British guy named Paul, and he was a lot like Mike. He was really silly. He coached us really hard, but we had a lot of fun. We knew that he wanted our best for us, that he had our backs if anything went wrong. We knew that we were loved, even just with him as our soccer coach. And what I didn't know at the time, because once again, I didn't know that they existed, was that he was a youth pastor just a couple blocks from my house. That was what his real job was. He wasn't just a high school soccer coach. So that's right. Youth pastors are real people, too, with real jobs. So <laughs> don't let anyone tell you differently. So Mike invited me to come to youth group. And there's no way I would have come if I didn't know Paul was going to be there. And I accepted. So by this time in the year, I'd been going off and on for a couple months. And they hatched their next plan. So what they knew about me was that I liked to play sports. You know, I talked about I played soccer. I played baseball. I played golf. I was even on the diving team one summer. Like, how did my mom sign me up for that? Where does that come from? And so they knew how to get me. So they said, come to camp. All we're going to do is play sports. There's going to be tournaments and swimming on the beach, good food, good fun. And so in the oldest youth ministry trick in the book, they got me. And that decision to go to camp that summer, it changed my life. And it's just one example of decisions that I've made to figure out what God has in store for me. And like I said, I've come a long way these past 10 years but not without some bumps in the road. I had a lot of maturing to do after that trip, and it took me a long time to do that. All I knew was that I had started this journey with God, but I didn't know where it would take me. Where would I go next? Where would I go from here? Would it be clear what my next decision should be? 
And as I gradually began to understand God's calling on my life, I didn't make all the right decisions. In fact, I made a lot of wrong decisions, some mistakes. I mean, I even thought about going to TCU for college. <laughs> I mean, doctor still made fun of the Aggies, so I thought I'd finish it, you know. I'd have to wear purple and lose football games 61 to 58. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do that. And even five years ago, when I was doing my undergraduate work here at Baylor, seminary wasn't even on my radar for most of the time. I had big plans for other careers, vocations, lives, places to live, things to do. And these things weren't bad, but God had something else in store for me. I needed wise counsel from my pastor and friend, Toph, who did our invocation this morning, to understand that God was saying no to these things and was saying yes to staying in Waco for a couple more years and coming here to Truett. And looking back on my decisions, it was hard to get to this place. It was hard to know what God had in store for me. It was hard to venture out into the unknown and figure out where I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to do. And even now, it's tough to figure out where to go next. And I think that our text this morning has a lot to say about how we figure out this problem of where do we go from here? How do we figure out what God wants for us, both on a micro level and a macro level? To set the stage just before our text, Paul and Barnabas have a DTR and decide to go their separate ways. <laughs> Paul decides to take Silas with him on his journey and return to many of the churches that they'd previously established on their last time through. And so after arriving in Lystra, they round out their squad by picking up Timothy, and they move on to these churches. And after working with these churches, we see that Paul accomplished what they initially set out to do. The churches were growing in faith, growing in stature, and they were growing with members. It seemed as if everything was going according to Paul's plan, just as he thought it would. But when we get to our text for this morning, we see that Paul had made plans for this journey, and they weren't exactly lining up with what God had in store for him. You see, Paul's original plan was to go to Asia. What is intended by Asia is uncertain in the text. It could have been the Roman province of Asia, or it could have been a much narrower, narrower sense, the cities along the Aegean coast, like Philadelphia or Ephesus with Ephesus serving you know, a huge role later on in the story. It's one of the places where Paul would end up spending a great deal of time in the future. And so maybe this is why he wanted to go here first. Maybe that was his original plan to go to Asia. But we see that at this point, Paul was stopped from going into Asia by the Holy Spirit. And I wish we were given more information to the revelation of the Spirit that he received. I wish we knew if this was like his Damascus Road experience, or maybe it was something more subtle during a quiet time. Or maybe it was even the Holy Spirit working through one of his companions. But what we see is that while the medium of the Spirit's revelation to Paul isn't given to us, the important point is that he was stopped from going to Asia. God had other plans for Paul and his companions. So Paul takes it in stride. He continues going north towards Mysia before they're stopped a second time on their journey. After hearing from, that they were not gonna, from the Holy Spirit that they were not going to go to Asia, Paul figures, all right, we'll go into Bithynia. It seems like a very good plan to me. Bithynia had populous cities like Nicomedia, Nicaea, Byzantium. It's a very solid strategy. We're going to hit up the big city centers, establish churches there, and continue on our journey. But this time, the spirit of Jesus prevents them from going into Bithynia. So Paul and Silas and Timothy have got to be thinking to themselves, you know, come on. We had a great strategy here. We developed a business plan, vision statement. We knew where we were going in order to effectively advance the good news. But we keep getting stopped. But we shouldn't focus on the geographic scheme for effective ministry here, but the way in which they were willing to listen to what God wanted for them in spite of the plans they'd made already. 
And even when they heard a resounding no from God, they didn't pout about it. I think that's hard for us today. Sometimes we can have such a singular and narrow focus, that job that seems like such a perfect fit for us, that relationship that seems so great, or a place to live in the neighborhood with the good schools. But sometimes we hear back from God, you know, someone else got that position. You know, he or she isn't right for you. You're meant to be an example and invest in a different community. And when we hear no to these things, it's tough to get back on the horse. You know, I'm like many people in this room trying to figure out what's next. And it's tough. It's tough to hear a no from God, especially because this wasn't some small detail or lackadaisical strategy. Paul had put work into this idea. He had made plans. He'd probably dreamed and prayed for the people that he would meet. But Paul shows us that we can't let this no stop us from finding our yes. We aren't supposed to go into Asia. Great, we'll just head on over to Bithynia. Okay, Bithynia is a no too. You sure? Okay, we can work with that. Paul didn't get stagnant when things didn't go according to his plan. He stayed active, trying to figure out what God would have him do next. So next, Paul decides to head on down to Troas. And I can just imagine what his companions are thinking again. You know, we just walked all the way up here. There are cities here with so many people. You know, we can do ministry here. And now we're heading to someplace different again? Okay, that's fine. You know, we'll get to Troas, and we'll really start getting some work done there. You know, there's a big population here. There's a huge harbor, provides the main sea access across to Macedonia. But Troas isn't where they stayed. In verse 9, we get Paul's famous vision of the Macedonian man saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. While some scholars argue that the man in this vision could have been Luke or even Alexander the Great, we really have no clue. The identity of the man as a Macedonian was all that counted. After seeing this vision, we see that Paul shared it with his companions. I think this is an essential part of the text that often gets glossed over. Just as we wish to know more about the ways that Paul initially heard no from God, we'd like to know more about what the discernment process was like with this vision. As the language in the text switches to first-person plural, it becomes clear that Paul leaned on his companions as they all decided the next they were supposed to go to Macedonia. And I think we get a glimpse here into what the New Testament ecclesia should include. People living life together, listening to the Holy Spirit, people who have fellowship with God and each other, and their identification is centered around Jesus Christ. So Paul leaned on those around him to hear God and to discern what he wanted and to figure out where to go next. So Paul and his crew, they make their way from Troas across the sea to Philippi by way of Neapolis. And after arriving in Philippi, they experience a city that had strong Roman influences, as it had also been granted the status of a colony. And this is where we see God's vision meet with Paul's strategy. Upon arriving in Philippi and getting settled, Paul sets out on his usual pattern and approach. To the Jew first, right? So Paul is going to make his way to the synagogue, preach the message of good news to the Jewish believers there. But there is no synagogue. There is no Macedonian man waiting for him with open arms saying, I'm so glad you're here. You got my message. Instead, the leading Jewish place of worship wasn't a synagogue full of men at all. The best place to find committed Jewish believers was outside the city gate in a group of women who gathered for prayer. And among the women who gathered there, one stood out, Lydia. She serves as another example of prominent women in Paul's missionary and church efforts alongside the women of Thessalonica, Damaris and Athens, Priscilla and Corinth. And she is described as a dealer in purple cloth, which is not an incidental detail. This marks her as a person of means. 
purple as a sign of royalty and having nothing to do with the horned frogs, probably meant that she had a lucrative business. And as it turns out, she was even willing to open up her home for Paul and his companions upon hearing the good news of Christ. But Lydia didn't just open her home for them. She allowed it to become a gathering place for the developing Christian community in Philippi. She embraced the ideal of the early church, not laying claim to what was hers, but freely sharing it with her sisters and brothers in Christ. And this eventually led to the formation of the Philippian church, which was renowned by Paul for their generosity and support throughout his further travels and ministry. And what we see in terms of the decision-making process is that God's prompting through the vision of the Macedonian man didn't give them everything they needed to know about the future. It gave Paul and his companions just enough to point them in the right direction towards Macedonia. And we see a partial fulfillment of that vision in the life and faith of Lydia, the other women, and the Philippian church. Just like Paul, when we do get that yes from God, we aren't given all the answers. But we have to be willing to listen and respond with action when we get just enough to go on. And we see from the example of Paul here that it's time to die to needing to have it right, to needing to have it all together, to know for sure what's next for us. We have to be willing to allow God to move in and through us as we seek to figure out where do we go from here, figure out what's next. Paul lived a life that was open to God's prompting. And we have to be willing to follow God's prompting too if, and more likely when, it isn't clear. We must be willing to improvise and use our God-given intellect and intuitions when it doesn't turn out like we expect. You saw a vision of a Macedonian man? Great. Here's a group of women in the river who are radically going to live out the gospel. You had a vision of leading a growing urban congregation? Well, actually, I need you in this rural church that needs help navigating what it looks like to be set apart for Christ. You want to continue your education? Awesome. Here's a group of high school students who need someone in their life that they can count on. You felt called to this position? Well, I need you someplace else. It turns out that our plan, even when influenced by divine guidance, doesn't compare to what God actually has in store for us. I think the example that Paul sets for us in our text today should give us great comfort. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. His influence is felt you know, throughout half of this book, changed the course of history, but he messed up. He got it wrong. He developed plans and strategies, and he was supposed to go to Asia and then Bithynia. But that wasn't where God wanted him to be. And that's okay. That doesn't mean he wasn't actively seeking God. In his best attempts to figure out where God would want him to go next, he got it wrong. But he kept moving right along until he got a vision from God. And you know what? That vision of a Macedonian man turned out to be a Thyatiran woman. And Paul rolled with it. He knew that God had something in store for him and was willing to actively seek out where God would have him go, even when it didn't turn out like he expected. For me, I'm graduating in a couple weeks. I don't know what I'm doing next. I mean, I know I'm getting married, so don't tell Julie I said that. But other than that, I'm just not sure yet. I felt God's prompting in no's and in yeses, just like Paul. But I'm trying to figure out what God has in store for me. And that's okay. I'm not going to get stagnant. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to look at the support for those around me to discern what's next. But I think what we see from Paul here is more than just figuring out life plans and where to go next. It leads us to a more nuanced understanding of the unknown. Bob Goff, the author of a must-read book called Love Does, says, do not, don't let not knowing how it'll end keep you from beginning. Uncertainty chases us out in the open where God is waiting. So whether it's finding that next job, 
figuring out where to devote your time in service, picking a major. Don't let the uncertainty keep you from experiencing God. Maybe you're stepping into a new role as a grandparent, figuring out a relationship, wondering what to do this summer, or just not sure where your congregation is headed next. God is waiting for you in in that uncertainty. The important thing is to listen to what God is trying to say to you, to teach you, or to show you, because you don't have to face that uncertainty alone. As Henry Nouwen describes it, we should be all ear for God. Nouwen says that we are usually surrounded by so much inner and outer noise, it's truly hard to hear God when he's speaking to us. We've often become deaf, unable to know when God calls us, and unable to discern in which direction God wants us to go. So as you're making plans, weighing pros and cons, determining strategies, deciding where you go from here, wherever your here is or wherever that you're there is, it is my prayer that we can be attentive to God's voice and alert for his direction, that we can be all ear for God. We might, well, actually, we'll probably will mess up. We'll get it wrong. It might take us a few tries. But if we're willing to be all ear for God, we might just get enough to point us in the right direction. And sometimes that's all we need.